0: This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, episode 52, A New Perspective with
1: Les Himmel. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your hosts, Mark Willis and Holly Bach, invite you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious, be stable, be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast. Helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. Hey
0: everybody, Mark Willis here for another episode. Glad you could join us. Uh, With me in the studio today is Katrina Willis. Hello. And Holly Bach. Hello, hello. So we've got a special guest to uh, introduce you all to today. And uh, he's been, uh, I've had the privilege of getting to know him over the last few years. Uh, So his name is Lester Himmel. Now he's been involved in the financial industry for 42 years. And two thirds of that time he spent on Wall Street. And a third of the time since then has been in the personal finance arena, helping people learn more about the realities that he found while he was undercover, you might say, in Wall Street. 28 years of time on Wall Street, boy, that sounds like a prison sentence. It didn't mean to, but uh, 28 years on Wall Street involved, uh, he was involved in compliance, administration, sales, and he was involved in many of the recent phenomena on Wall Street, the dot-com era especially, and as, as well as various sectors in the investment world. Les truly believes that his background gives him a unique insight into how the big financial realities impact individuals' lives, their financial lives. And uh, from that, he can, you know, I think you'll find in this interview with him that uh, he brings a very fresh and more accurate perspective on some of the myths of standard conventional wisdom. So we've had this uh, recording ready to go. I'm excited to get to share him, him with you all. Uh, so uh, please enjoy this wide-ranging interview with Les Himmel. Les, welcome to Not Your Average Financial Podcast.
2: Well, thank you. I'm very, very happy to be here.
0: All right. So we have a lot of ground to cover and only a, a short time to do it today. And as I mentioned in our intro about who you are, I believe you have a very unique position to speak from. Uh, you know, uh by sitting in a certain place, you get a new perspective on a situation. You know, you can see things different from the top of the skyscraper than from ground level, and I think you have uh, a tremendously unique perspective on where things stand in our financial world today uh, from the perspective of Wall Street, the perspective of traditional and standard conventional financial wisdom. Uh, so I want to hear all about it. To, you know, uh, tell us the truth. What are you seeing from where you are? Uh, you know, I, I get so many um people, I guess, individuals uh, talking with me, speaking with our, our clients. I mean, it's shouted from uh, the mainstream news media that, you know, there are specific truisms or catchphrases or anecdotes or uh, rules of thumb that we should all just be able to rely on, right? Um, so let me just kind of throw a few out there. Uh, I mean, for example, less. I've heard that the market always goes up, like we can get 10% or more, right? Isn't that, kind of what uh, everyone's taught.
2: That is more or less the conventional wisdom, or at least that's the way uh, Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman seems to portray it.
0: And, of course, taxes are going to be lower when I'm retired because I'll be in a lower tax bracket and uh, making less income, I guess, or, you know, I've deferred all of my 401K funds for that reason. I mean, those are all things that I should be able to just rely on, right?
2: People do tend to think that way.
0: Um, you know, things like uh, mutual funds provide the best source of diversification, uh, stay in the market for the, the long term, you know, just ride out that recession if you have to. I mean, these are all things that I'm taught, I guess we just sort of hear. Uh, these are things that I assume you've heard as well with your clients, is that right?
2: Absolutely, uh, but let me approach these at least to start the conversation. The 10% or more per year in the market, we will address that in more detail in in a moment or two. I'm sure we'll get to that. But taxes will be lower when I'm retired. That, again, something we'll get into, but we're at record lows in tax rates now. How much lower will they go? And I believe that the truism of taxes will be lower when I'm retired has a lot to do with where tax rates were 20, 30, 40, and 50 years ago not where they are today. But again, we'll get into that more.
0: Well, yeah, let's start right where right there. I mean, uh, so give me some idea of what comes up when, when you talk with people.
2: Exactly that, and the conversation starting with taxes. Back in the 19, late 40s, early 50s, the highest marginal tax rate in this country
0: was close to 93%. To Hold which on. Wow, 93%. That was was the highest marginal?
2: Wow. Yeah, it was when we were paying off World War II. Mm, Right. Now, it's a marginal tax rate, and people tend to breathe gaspingly, thinking, how does anyone pay 90-something percent on taxes? It's marginal, which means there are thresholds. And when you go up in your scale of income, the first, like today, The first $15,000 is at a low tax rate, the next $25,000 is at a higher tax rate and so on. So when we talk about 90 something percent tax rate on the margin or at the upper margin, that means for the sake of expression, let's say it's a million dollar income, the last $400,000 might be at that rate, not the entire piece of income. But regardless, from the 50s to today, we've seen a, a fairly frequent decrease in tax rates to where they are today, and today, the highest tax rate, well, coming up is, was it high 20s now instead of the, the low 30s, but the point is that, yes, when you're in retirement, you might see a lower tax rate than that if things stay even, but will they stay even, number one. Number two, yes, if your income stays low, but people tend to think they're going to be successful when they reach retirement. By the time they put money into these plans, this growth, this wealth accumulation, and they turn to retirement, they hope to have a good chunk of money and nice income flow. Mm -hmm. Well, if that's the case, do you want to be at the lowest tax rate?
0: Right. Yeah. Well, so, uh, you know, there's so many myths. I'd love for you to just pick a few here, just like you did there. I mean, just just the myth that we're going to be in a lower tax bracket in, in the future. I mean, uh, even this most recent tax reform, we, we were all made painfully aware that there are expiration dates on those tax rates, right? Unless Congress acts, taxes yes. are going up seven And
2: years. therein lies, I think, the biggest problem with dealing with someone that's new to the financial planning arena, a client that is, and that is this. They tend to look at things in a one or two year time frame. Favorable time frame thinking is really what it pertains to. Hmm. They tend to look at returns in the market, the opportunity to make 23% if they buy a good stock. They tend to look at how fast their car is going to deteriorate, what it's going to cost to buy food tonight. But when we talk about financial planning and really estate planning, the two are merged. What we're really talking about are 10, 20, 30, and 40-year plans. So the idea of talking about what it costs me today Yes, it's a little difficult for people to think about, well, what does that mean in 30 years? That's hard, but that's why we have to deal with professionals to get involved with all the calculations and all the anticipation and anticipate problems, volatility, Mm. that sort of thing. But it's that 20, 30, and 40-year game plan that should remove you from this idea of working on what's the return on investment this week.
0: Absolutely. It's going to be over time. So what are, what are the realities of the stock market? I mean, uh, you've talked about the Roaring 20. Ta- tell me a bit about what that is, what that means.
2: Well, that, that is an interesting point. Um, I work with what is called a cumulative rate of return that gives me a great deal of insight into the way I look at things. Here's how it works. If I look at where the Dow Jones Industrial Average was prior to the Depression in 1929, 1930s, If I go all the way back to 1900, and I determine where the Dow was in 1980, now that's 38 years ago, but 1980. That 80-year period from 1900 to 1980, if I were to figure out what interest rate would be used to get in an even fashion from 1900 to 1980's Dow Jones Industrial Average, over that course of time, compounding in a straight fashion, That interest rate is called the cumulative rate of return, and it was less than 4%. If I look at 1980 to 2000, now those that were alive and investing in those days, that 20-year run I refer to as the roaring 20, that cumulative rate of return in the Dow was just under 14%. And in that 20-year run, especially in the 90s, we had an amazing series of situations where the, the stock market just kept going up and up and up. There was a little volatility in there, but generally speaking, it was up in a very precipitous way. That's what people have come to think is and was normal. They were living it, and the people that are now involved in the market, whether they're 18 years old or, or, or 70, they either grew up in that 20-year period, financially speaking, or their investor, uh, investment advisors did. So that lore continues in a great many ways. That 20-year period has given us this sense of that's what's normal. So that feeling of the
0: market always returns more than
2: 10%, then it did. Since
0: then, it has not. I'm looking at this chart, less and, and uh, we'll have to include this in the show notes, but I'm seeing the Great Depression almost looks like, you know, a wrinkle in the carpet, basically. Uh, and there's 1987, you know, so small, I can hardly even see the Black Monday, right? Uh, I mean, but the tremendous upsurge from 1980 to 2000 is the anomaly uh, from 1900 to today. It's the anomaly. Uh, yes. it's, you're right. It, and the volatility is low. The... The climb is steep, and you're saying that overall, from uh, from that period, it was a 14 percent return. Uh, that's and that's
2: 14 percent climb on average. 14. As much as I hate averages, but the that 14 percent was created by such things as that's when baby boomers came along. Right. 401k started January 1st, 1980. It doesn't go back beyond that. There was a law that was passed in 1978 which allowed through a loophole the 401k section of the law that allowed for a man by the name of ted bennett to create 401ks which became effective in 1980. so you had the combination of baby boomers with 401ks jumping into the market you had a number of other factors including desktop computers and uh, low interest rates because of high interest rates in the early 80s fighting inflation but then incredibly quick descending interest rates into something would more characterized as normal, fourteen percent down to seven percent kind of a change. But the idea of encouraging home ownership with the government, trying to fight inflation, real assets. There are a number of different things we can expand on, but that twenty year run was just an incredible time in history.
0: You mentioned some you mentioned something there. You said I, I hate averages and I want to hear more about that you know what is you know uh, what is the real return of the market you know, what is has it returned anything i guess is one question and what do you mean by you hate averages I'm, I'm curious about that
2: well my philosophy of what to do with the market has a lot to do with what are called arithmetic averages used for projections and straight line projections which are the result of those arithmetic averages and let me be more specific when you go to a an investment advisor typically and you ask for a mutual fund the typical response would be something on the order of well this mutual fund over the last pick a number 15 20 25 years has returned an average of and they'll say 7.3 9.8 6.2 whatever the number is yeah but that number is simply an average of what is actually changes per year not return and that gets into a bigger conversation but here's what a return really is a return is if i invest money and i make money or not but whatever my resultant number of dollars is at the end of the investment period that's my return whether i characterize that as a year's worth of return or i've owned it for 17 years and over 17 years worth of return but something and i should take into account my purchase price, my sale price at the end of that period, whatever I got in terms of investment income during that period, like a rental property where I receive a $1,000 a month, minus expenses, which in the case of investment situations make be fees, might be interest charged on margin, could be anything. But the calculation of all these factors gives me a return on my investment. However, when I look at an investment, check that, when I look at anything in the um, financial world, I often hear such things as the Dow has returned 9.8 in 1982. It didn't return anything. It changed. And there is a misnomer, a misunderstanding in the use of the words there, but it leads people to think that if they're related to something in that particular area, example, in the year 2018, when we're, we're talking now, this is now July. Year to date, the Dow has done very little. Hasn't gone down, but it hasn't done much. However, one of the instruments in the Dow up until about a month ago was General Electric. General Electric made up one of the Dow Jones Industrial Average 30 securities. General Electric is cut in half on the year. So the idea that the Dow is doing or anything within the Dow is doing the same thing as what the index does is on many people's minds. They don't realize it, but when they hear that the stock market's up 3%, they're thinking, hey, we can go out to dinner. But their securities within that area, within that arena, might actually be down, maybe up more, but it is not tied to whatever that index is or does.
0: Wow. So I'm hearing a few things that ha- are going to have to change my vocabulary. And like so many things with Wall Street, they, they tend to put words to, you know, make obscure the actual meaning. Uh, I mean, the very word securities, uh, right? Uh, right. What, what's so secure about securities? Uh, but you just said something new that, that, you know, there's really no return until you sell the stock that, you know, you've invested in or purchased. Until then, you're just seeing the value of that stock change. Well, that makes so much sense when when it's described, but I think how many people go 40 years or whatever with their 401k and never stop to think about that, that until they have that money back in their pocket, it's just a changing value on a piece of paper.
2: Right. But that brings up an entirely more important point, and that's where the averages come from. Yeah. If I walk into that investment advisor, and if that investment advisor says, you should buy this mutual fund over the last 25 years it's returned an average of 7.74 percent it's not true i can say that without fear of contradiction because i know it's not true why because he's not taking into account as if i'm the investor what my fees are he's not taking into account what my tax rate is he's not taking into account anything else that comes into play when i have to determine what my actual returns are on any investment Mm. but even putting that aside If he's looking at historic averages, again, those are average changes, not average returns. But then if he uses that same bit of information to look forward from that point, which is standard uh, practice, he says, over the last 25 years, it's returned an average of 7.74%. So looking forward, the next 25 years or more, we can use 7.74%. Okay, let's be conservative. Let's use 6.74%. That straight line projection going forward, ignores volatility that might arise and with volatility can destroy any compounding of any earnings or gains in that investment. That being the case, what we're really talking about is the fact that all of these straight line projections that are used throughout the financial world lead to anticipations that are typically largely not the results you were looking for.
0: Okay, so let me kind of break down what I'm hearing you say, Les, and I'd love to, to walk through an ex, like a specific example on this. And I think you've got some numbers where if you dumped in $100 or something in the year 2000, what we would have on an average return versus sure. the straight line versus the real return. Uh, I'd love to walk through that with you, but you're exactly right. The, the, the common way to sort of show a client um, – what they can expect from a mutual fund is to look backwards, take an average from all the years up and down, all the changes of the stock value or index value, whatever, and then to push forward on that average as if there's no volatility. And that's huge. The volatility on, on your future uh, matters, right? Uh, so say some more about that. Um, kind of how do the average person, when they think, hey, you know, I'm, I've got this average rate of return from my uh, investment advisor. He or she says that I can expect such and such rate of return. Why is, why is that something we can't put our trust in?
2: Well, let's start again with the calculations of what the average change or return, in their case, was looking back. The way the man on the street will, I don't mean to insult anyone out there, but this is the, really the way it works. If an advisor says in year one, your portfolio is up 10%, and then you come back a year later and say, "Now, how am I doing?" And he says, "Well, you're down 10 percent." Most people will just, in a knee-jerk reaction to that, think, "I'm even."
0: Well,
2: hmm. you're not. Right. Right. So I start with $100 and I go up 10 percent. I'm at 110. If at 110 I go down 10 percent, I'm at 99 because 10 percent of 110 is 11, not 10. So yeah. I'm subtracting from a bigger figure. Another example. If I go up 100% in year one and I go down 50% in year two, I'm simply looking at those changes, or in the case of the index, what is characterized as the return. Up 100% in year one, down 50% in year two gives me a net of 50 divided by two for each year. I get 25% average return. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, it sounds great. But that's not what happens with real dollars. If I start with $100 and I go up 100%, I have $200. If I go down 50%, I have $100. Back to where I started. Back to where I started, not a 25% return. But if I'm looking at changes in the past, again, and I just take an average, I'm looking for a 25% return. Wow. So now I take a 60% increase, as an example, and down 50%, 60 minus 50 is 10 Divided by two for two years, I get a 5% return on my investment. No, if I put $100 into the market and it goes up 60% in year one, I've got 160. It goes down 50% in year two, I've got 80. 160, 50% is wow. 80. I'm at a wall.
0: So just to be clear, so even though my investment advisor can proudly puff his chest and say, I got you a 5% average rate of return over these two years. I open up my brokerage account or whatever, and I started with $100. I went up to $160. I dropped to $80. He says I have a 5% average rate of return, but I have lost over those two years $20, bucks, let us say. It may, or may
2: not, yeah, it may or may not go directly to what an advisor is telling you on your portfolio because hopefully he's looking at actual dollars. Not always, but hopefully. Mm. But the real problem is when they look back in history at the average returns, as they call it, on some instrument, take that average, and then look forward. That's where this comes into play in a bigger way, and I'll explain. If we look at the Standard & Poor's Index from the year 2000, actually December 31st of the year 2000, the index was at 1,320. If we look at the annual changes, the 1,320 became 1,148 in year 2, then 870 in year 3. Now, that was the collapse in year 2001, 2002, the tech bubble collapse. But the S and P continues changing year by year by year. So it was down thirteen percent first time, then down twenty three, then up twenty six, then up nine, then up three. If I take all those changes over the course of sixteen years, out to December thirty first, two thousand sixteen, when the Dow, rather, sorry, the S and P was at twenty two thirty eight. Now remember, it started at thirteen twenty in two thousand. It went to twenty two thirty eight in two thousand sixteen. During that 16-year run, it was not a straight line. There was a lot of volatility. In the year 2008, we saw a 38% drop. That volatility, if I take all those changes, down 13, down 23, up 26, and so on, all the way down, I put all the numbers, I sum them, and I divide by the the number 16 for 16 years, my average is 5%. Now, many people will think, no, over the course of time, the market's going to return over 10%. Well, there you go, over that 16-year run, the average was 5%. But more importantly, now we can take that 5% and look at it two ways. One is, it's all too frequent that given that information, an investment advisor or someone not really in on all how this all works, they will take that 5% and look forward, anticipating a 5% return if they invest even taking into account what's happened in the past, all the volatility, but now I can look forward and expect 5%. Well, let's go to what actually goes on here. If I take $100 again and I invest it in the S&P, were I able to do that, in the year 2000, over the course of time, 16 years, with all the volatility I will end up with, after 16 years, $169.52.
0: After 16 years. Got it. Okay. 16 years. I've got got it. it.
2: 100 becomes 169. If, however, I had taken that 5% average and thinking, okay, well, maybe I can look forward a bunch of years. 16 years is a nice figure. So I can take my $100 invested at 5% anticipated earnings. I should be able to get, well, how much do I get? And the answer is $218.
0: Wait a minute. So, So average return, 5%. I should have had the hundred and sixty-nine dollars, but th- that's not the correct math. You know, you said that if I put a hundred dollars in the market, and after you know the period of time from two thousand to the end of twenty sixteen, uh, I only had a hundred and sixty-nine dollars and fifty-two cents, and the average yeah. return of the S and P was five percent. Well, why? Why did I? Yeah, what's the difference there?
2: The difference is this: what I'm looking at are percent changes I'm assuming their returns and taking an average and assuming that this is a straight line scenario it's not uh, a straight line we know right. that changes were up and down well the average percentage changes giving me five percent does not correlate to the actual dollar moves now that's just, that's just a sentence that's a statement hmm. if I were to take that $100 start in 2000 and I were to move forward knowing that in the year 2016, I had $169. Now thinking, well, well, maybe it wasn't 5%. What was it? That's where cumulative rate of return comes in. I start with 100. I know I'm going to 169. What is the interest rate that gets me from 100 to 169 over 16 years with compounding, but in a very straight line fashion? That is what's called the cumulative rate of return. And in this example, that rate of return was not 5%, but 3.35. Now, let me state this a different way. If I took $100 and multiplied it by 1.0335 and did that every year, the result for 16 years, I'd get a
0: $169 return. Wow. And that's, so just setting aside the fact that we've all been sort of hoodwinked into thinking that, average changes are the same thing as real rates of return, or as you say, cumulative rates of return. Uh, how, how many people listening to this would willingly put up with the volatility of the last 16, 17 years, not to mention the fees and the taxes that go along with that, which you're not even including here, uh, but just the, the, the emotional weight of the ups and downs of the S&P over that period of time, all for a, a whopping 3.35% return. That's that's a tall order. I don't know if I would. No, my it's, money
2: in. it's painful, isn't it? And and here's where it comes into play in a huge way. Pension funds, union pension funds, corporate pension funds, and four hundred one k's. Now, how does it come into play in four hundred one k's? Because you go to your advisor, and all too often, some of the advisors might say, or HR departments in many cases, well. How old are you? Okay, if we put this much money in every month, because we know we're going to get 10% or more in the stock market, or let's be conservative, let's say it's 7% or 6%, more conservative, I should say. And all you have to do is put X amount of dollars into your 401k every paycheck. And by the time you reach age 65 or age 70, you will be worth this much money. Well, that in itself is a straight line projection using historic averages. And that is, again, misleading. So if you're doing a a set it and forget it kind of an investment, I'm just putting this much money into my 401k every paycheck, and it's going to be worth this someday. And you're seeing the, the market drop, and then you're seeing the market come back, and you're thinking that over time you're going to be okay. That's not how it works. The reality is there are many, many more people out there thinking, what happened? I was supposed to have this much money by this point. What it were to go. And the answer is volatility and a misleading, anticipated trajectory. It doesn't work in a straight-line fashion. Wow so what we're trying to portray here is the fact that um, what we think we know, what we actually see, are very different.
0: Les, there's some tremendous content here, and I I hope our listeners have really heard you well, and and if you have to, go back and listen to this again, because this is a a gentleman who's been in the financial industry for 42 years, uh, spending much of it on Wall Street. Uh, So, take a look at uh, what he sees, run it past what you see, Uh, double-check this, don't take his word for it, don't take anyone's word for it, look at the real math and see what you come up with. Uh, But... You know, the honest truth is we, we haven't been given the full picture uh, from certainly not uh, a, uh, the conventional financial wisdom. Uh, we are going to do a part two on this. And, uh, Les, if you're, if you're available, I'd love to do that with you. But do you have any parting thoughts on how folks can begin to cer- search out alternatives, anything that you can leave people with uh, as, as we wrap up here today?
2: Sure. The, the first thing to recognize with what we have already said is that even if you think, as you've been told many times, that you have time to make it up, that you're young and if the market goes down, you'll you'll see it come back again, which does happen on occasion. Compounding is not that flexible. It's the eighth wonder of the world, according to Einstein, but it must be consistent to be useful. And volatility destroys compounding. That's the first part of the statement. The second part of the statement is, Imagine yourself to be 82 years old in retirement and you're thinking of straight-line anything and your investments in your IRA or whatever you're using at that point to pay your bills goes down. What do you do? You don't live on averages. You live on whatever the reality is in your account. Now, the idea of the alternatives, the alternatives should be anything that narrows down that volatility range, which we'll talk about in the future. But stocks... And bonds do not narrow volatility. Bonds, in theory, are supposed to help do that, but in reality, not so much. Well,
0: that's a great teaser for our next episode. Then, um, Les, thank you. And I think you you leave leave us with a great point. I mean, again, so many advisors say, you know, just stick with it, buy and hold. Um, you know, don't open that 401k and you know watch your investments plummet when markets are correcting. Just just hold the line. You know, stick it, stick with it. I've even heard people say that financial winter. Is something that you just have to accept uh and and i just don't agree i don't think it's ever an acceptable thing to lose money uh if if it means that we're going to be never able to invest again that's that's a terrible opportunity cost Uh, and and it drags down our yield and and gives us something much less than what we were quote-unquote promised um when we signed up for that mutual fund that was promising an average x percent a year so thank you les i appreciate your time and we look forward to the next episode
2: My pleasure. I look forward to it as well.
0: Okay. So that was part one with Les Himmel. And as you can tell, we are not done yet. There's plenty more content to cover in part two, and we are going to let you wait anxiously with bated breath for the next week, where we have our exciting conclusion with a new perspective with Les Himmel part two. Please uh, wait for our next episode dropping next Friday. So thank you for joining us for another episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future.
1: This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join a financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting.
0: The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.